What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And welcome to Financials Podcast, Future Rich. I'm your host, Barbara Ginty, and I am a CFP, which stands for a Certified Financial Planner. And I am here with my uh, guest today, who is an expert, Robert. Hi, how are you? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing very well. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And you are also a podcast uh, host and entrepreneur. So would you like to give our listeners um, your background? Sure. So my background, I always start back to when I was four years old. I started racing motocross. I know it's a long time ago, but I go back to that story because it, it differentiates me a little bit in the podcast space, the finance space. It seems a lot of people are very similar. So I like to give a little bit of a background on how I'm a little bit different. And so when I was four years old, I started racing motocross. I raced up until I was about 14 and I was about a year away from turning professional. I was about number two ranked in the world for my age group. And wow. it was pretty much just... Uh, time until I was of age to become pro. And so because of that, I didn't have any plans to go to college. I had no interest in finance, money, come from a blue collar family, single dad. So I had no intentions of going to school. Nobody in my family's ever gone to college, anything like that. So it was just racing. Like that was it. That was all I was going to do. And then when I was 14, somebody close to us passed away racing and that hit my dad really, really hard. And so basically from that day forward, I didn't step foot on a bike again for about 10 years. And so Did now I'm a fresh cold turkey, cold turkey. I didn't have a choice. My dad made me stop and okay. I was only 14. You had to be 18 to sign your own waivers to race. And Got so there's nothing I could do. And so I was a freshman in high school. I had to figure something out and I liked money and I'm really good at math. That was always my strongest suit. So I said, well, why don't I combine the two money and math and I'll get interested in finance. And Long story short, I ended up stumbling into Warren Buffett, becoming super passionate about finance, investing, ended up going to college, being the first in my family to do that. Now I invest in real estate, entrepreneur, host podcasts, and uh, yeah, that's how I got to where I am today. I'm glad that you started with uh, all the way back there. And you're back into motocross, right? I am, yeah. So I, I bought my first bike uh, after 12 years, like three or four months ago. Oh, congrats. That's exciting. Well, be careful. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and do you want to tell our listeners about your podcast? Yeah. So I host a show called Millennial Investing that is on Wednesdays. And then I also host another show called Real Estate 101, and that drops on Mondays. And so those two shows on the Millennial Investing Show, we help people from 20 to 40 invest their time and money better. Okay. Typically, that takes form in the stock market. Uh, mm -hmm. And it also, we talk a lot about personal finance because I believe being a good investor, you have to have strong base of personal finance. We also talk about side hustles to learn how to make a little bit extra money so you can actually have some money to invest. Mm -hmm. And then Real Estate 101 is helping new investors get started. You don't have to be young. A lot of people that listen are older, but it's helping you get your first, second, third, fourth, maybe fifth deal. As long as you're not doing hundreds of units, the show should be pretty applicable to you. Yeah, hundreds, that's, it would be a lot to start with 100 units. So, and then you. Yeah, we're looking to help people get that first deal. 
yeah, right. To get, get started in real estate, which I was, um, I'm sure you will talk more about real estate, but I, I've seen a lot of my clients who have kind of changed their trajectory, use real estate in order to do it. It's a, I love real estate. So you were able, so you didn't mention this yet, but you were able to quit your nine to five job. So you went full entrepreneur at the age of 26. Yeah. On my 26th birthday. So I did the whole school thing. I went through undergrad. I got my MBA. I got a license similar to your CFP. It's called the CMA. And I climbed the corporate ladder relatively quick. Uh, my last job, I was reporting to the CFO. So I was relatively high up in the financial uh, vertical, if you will, in a, mm-hmm. in a company. And so I was a corporate finance manager. I was doing relatively well from all normal metrics of success. I had pretty much reached the point that I never thought I would in my career anyway. And I was 25 and my goal had always been to be a CFO, but I always was entrepreneurial. My dad's an entrepreneur, he owns his own business. And I always knew I'd do that eventually, but I didn't know when I would get there. And so I was always working on side hustles on the side. And then none of my bosses ever had a problem with it. And then one day I got a new boss, a new CFO, and they had a problem with it. And I was ultimately given an ultimatum and I was told you need to pick your side hustles and the podcast stuff or your career. And I wasn't at a point where I could do that yet. So I kept with the career for about six to nine months or so, but that really lit even bigger fire under me. And I just worked really, really hard for six to nine months to really get it to a point where I could do it full time. And then, yeah, on my 26th birthday, I left the corporate world, which is about three months ago. And I uh, just have been doing this full time now. Oh, three months ago. Three months ago. Well, happy belated birthday. And congrats thank you. on the yeah, change. Thank you. That's, I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, just three months ago, January 27th of this year is, uh, was one of my last days at the corporate world. Oh my God, and right before a global pandemic. Right. Well, yeah, we were like in the middle of it. It was 2021. So it was, oh, yeah, uh, 2021. sorry. Yeah. So yeah. Even, I feel like I forget that that whole year existed. So my timing is agreed. off because yeah, it was agreed. Like a weird agreed. year. Yes. You did it in the middle of the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, I mean, in the middle of a pandemic. And then of course, you know, I invested a lot of time and energy going to school, getting degrees and it wasn't an easy decision, but I knew ultimately I'd get there anyway. So I figured, you know, why not jump? Yeah. Well, so I think probably with them telling you you had to give up your side hustles, I um, can relate to that. When I went to take my job at Credit Suisse, I actually had to sign a legal document t- saying that I gave up my side hustle so that they had like they could take legal action against me if you know I had secretly kept it. I just moved it into my mother's name. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. I've had that's why like if you look on social media, specifically Instagram, if you see a lot of pseudonym accounts, it's because they're not legally allowed to. Yeah do anything that they're doing on social media. And so they do it under a fake name. And that's why a lot of people don't give their real names. Yeah. My mom like now has a, fa- had a Facebook account because of that. Cause I had to set up everything, the social media and everything to my mother. And my mother will still say to me today, like someone says I have a Facebook account. I'm like you don't really though. That was just like a mechanism so that I could take a job. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like some bosses, bosses don't, don't care. care. And right. So- my boss didn't care, but the HR and like legal cared. So yeah, I mean, like the owner of the that. business that I work for didn't care. Like I literally went to dinner, like, so the CEO and the CFO that I used to report to, I flew down to Texas for a, a work with them and we were all like, we were out to dinner and we were talking about my podcast and he loved it. He thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And then I ended up getting a new CFO or a new boss who was the new CFO and they just felt differently about it, I guess. Yeah. A lot of companies don't like any risk and aren't willing to like think outside the box, especially like in a CFO role or finance role. They're like, these are the rules. This is a box. And you have to stay like right within those parameters. Yep. That's exactly right. 
So um, since it hasn't been that long, what do you, what would you say is like the best part so far of being an entrepreneur and what's the, maybe the scariest part or hardest part so far? The best part is the flexibility. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that I had a hard time with in the corporate world was I never, I've never, and it's partially because of my age, I think, and also the generation I've come up in, but I, I'm not one of those people that believes like you have to be there nine to five to be the most effective. And that was the corporate world tends to be pretty rigid about that kind of stuff. And they like FaceTime. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I don't know. I'm, I, I didn't fully like that. So I really like the flexibility that has come with being an entrepreneur. I was just down in North Carolina. I, I'm from Boston. So I was just down in North Carolina racing my dirt bike for the last five days. And it's great because I can do that. And then I work at night or, you know, whenever I feel like it. And so that's, that's been great. But the hardest part, and this is something that I really, really, really did not expect for me because my whole life, I've always been told that I'm one of the most motivated, hardworking guys that people have ever met. And I've always felt that about myself too. And I just had, have had no motivation. And it's been the weirdest thing, even though like, I love what I'm doing. I'm super fulfilled with it. Like I'm not doing something I hate. So it's just been really interesting that I've really, really lacked motivation. And I think it's because there's some value to getting up every day and having to be somewhere and having to get dressed and having to do all these things. And when you don't have that, that structure, I guess you could call it, is it takes away a lot of motivation. And the other interesting piece to me, and, and I'm a little bit biased probably because I'm a podcaster, but that aside, because I was a listener before I was an actual host, I used to commute about an hour to work each day. And I didn't realize how much true value I was getting from listening to podcasts and audiobooks. I didn't realize how much motivation that gave me because I'd hear stories from people doing all these amazing things. And that was super motivating to me. And so I don't commute anymore. I roll out of bed and hop to my desk. I mean, we talked about this before the show. Yeah. And so I don't get that piece. I don't really listen to podcasts anymore. And then when I just went down to North Carolina, I had a 14 hour drive. I listened to podcasts the whole time. When I got there, I was so motivated. I had all the motivation back. And so it really, the last couple of days that I've been back, I've been doing a lot of, I guess, self-reflection on, you know, what is going on with my motivation? What do I have to do to get that better? So that's, that's been the hardest part. For me, uh, there's goods like, you know, like the flexibility, but there's also bads. And and that's one piece I really didn't expect. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I don't know if you're a very like an extrovert social person, but that was one thing that I, I had a hard time when I quit my corporate job to own a small business. Because basically me, right? So by myself. So I was living in an uh, apartment and I'd get up and like work by myself all day. And then, you know, like if, you know, at the, I was working long hours. It wasn't, and I had no money to do anything social. So it wasn't like I could go meet a friend for a drink. I mean, I could go meet them for a glass of water, which in New York city, the bartenders do not like the person sitting at the bar drinking free water, you know, with a lemon. So I was just alone all the time. I would like, you know, go out. And so if someone talked to me, I'd be like, you know, like the local, I don't want to call her crazy. I don't know if she was or not, but there's this like woman who sat out on the street in a chair and like, I talked to her all the time. She actually knew my name because I didn't have very much social interaction besides clients, which is a very different interaction than like a friend or a peer or a colleague. So I thought that was an interesting thing leaving. I didn't think I'd miss that. And also I agree with you with the structure. Um, I will tell you one thing that I do because I was commuting when I worked, you know, I have, I walk to work or take the subway to work. And so now what I do is I try and walk in the morning before work so that I can listen. Cause I like podcasts for, you know, inspiration. I like music. And, um, so I'll try and walk a few days before work, like force myself to like get up at a certain time, shower, go for a walk, listen. And then I feels like it gets me ready for the day. Cause I think it is hard when you're by yourself and you're just like, 
you get up and now you're ready to, you're supposed to work immediately. And it's like hard to do that. I think with the structure part. Yeah. I like that idea. The problem is it's been freezing the last six months in Boston. Like I'm not going outside to walk. Oh, yeah, Boston. So <laughs> you'd have I to mean, like, yeah, just be very nice bundled. Yeah. I hate, the, I hate the cold. So I, I don't do that, but it's getting nicer. So yeah, I've been doing that a bit, even going to the gym. Like I used to go to the gym before work. It's just, it's been a lot harder to keep structure than, than I expected. I mean, that's really the easiest way to boil it down. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a common theme when I talk to entrepreneurs, like it's great to have the flexibility, but then like learning, like coming up with a structure for yourself that works. And I think that a lot of people uh, strive on structure and it's nice when you can create your own versus being told like, this is what the plan is like nine to five, an hour commute, whatever it is. But yeah, I can um, relate to the structure thing. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely tough. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you, what would it be your advice for somebody? Um, Cause you have real estate, right? As well. That's part of yeah. your, yep. your income. So why don't we talk a little bit about the real estate aspect? Um, Cause that helped you transition into being an entrepreneur full time, right? Yeah. So I got started in real estate by accident. So when I was a, going into my freshman year of college, my dad knew that I'd come out making a decent amount of money mm-hmm. or he just, maybe he just had the belief in me that I would, or he just assumed that my major would lead to that. And so he said, when you graduate college, you're going to, and you're, if you're still living here, you're going to have to pay some rent. And I didn't really think that was unrealistic. I thought it was totally fair. I just didn't really want to do that. And I knew it wasn't going to be like a super lot of money. I just didn't want to pay rent to him. Just, I guess maybe on principle. And so when I was 18, freshman in college, I told him that I was going to buy a house before I graduated college or as soon as I graduated college so that I didn't have to pay him any rent. And of course he thought I was crazy. He had, he didn't own a house until he was in his forties. Nobody else in my family had ever bought a house or, you know, made any type of investment. So all my friends, family thought I was crazy. And of course that gave me even more motivation to do it. And so my senior year of college, I bought my first house and before I walked at my college graduation and I didn't realize I didn't do it as an investment or anything like that. I didn't have real estate on the horizon. I just didn't want to pay my dad rent. And that was it. That was, that was really all I thought to it. And then I moved in and I, it was a two bedroom house and it was just me. And I realized that I didn't even open the bedroom door, the second bedroom door for months. And so I said, well, I should probably do something with this. And so I ended up renting that bedroom out for about 700 to $750. And my all in costs was about 1100 a month. And so I, I was living for like three, $400 a month. And I was like, wow, this is pretty great. A couple months went by. I realized I was like, I'm not that smart. So I can't be the first person that's ever done this. So I got to, let me look into this. And so I looked it up. I found out that that's actually a real estate investing strategy called house hacking. Mm -hmm. And it turned me on to bigger pockets and all these other people that are investing in real estate that were no different than me. And so that really is what knocked down all my limiting beliefs. I was always interested in real estate. I always wanted to do it, but I always thought that you had to be a millionaire to Mm -hmm. invest in real estate. I always thought, because my passion and my background was in stock investing. So I figured, all right, I'll make all my money in the stock market. Then I'll diversify and put that money into real estate once I have enough. So for so your, first, I, your first home down payment, did you just save that from working throughout college? Yeah. So I worked nearly full-time in college. Oh, wow. Okay. And I mean, it wasn't a lot of money. It was like, I think I put 5% down and I somehow through my studying realized that I could do this thing called the seller credit. And they paid a lot of my closing costs. I think I got like $5,000 from them. So I was all into this house for like $8,000, $9,000. So, I mean, that could be a lot of money to people. So I get that, but it's not like 50,000 or a hundred thousand, right? It's yeah. eight, $9,000. 
and then so now then you got took on a roommate you learned more about real estate and realized that other people were doing this and house yeah, hacking. so when i realized who how many people were doing it like i heard all these stories i was like okay they're no different than me they're no different than me if they can do it i can do it and so ended up I've, I'm, i live in a house hack right now this is my third one so i've done three house hacks and then other than that i own another five units that are all just traditional rentals and now do you manage them all yourself i do from thousands of miles away yeah so that was your next question so how do you do it from so far away and how do you figure out what market you're going to invest in so those are two separate, very big just, questions. Yes. <laughs> Let's start with the markets because okay. I think you got to find the market first before you manage the rentals. So I had been house hacking for a little bit. I was on my second one, I believe, when I started to buy rentals or maybe my third even. Okay. And so I had met a, a, a guy named Ryan. He and I had been friends for a few years and he wanted to invest in real estate. I wanted to invest in real estate, but we didn't really want to buy anything in the Boston area because to get something decent is going to have to put about a hundred thousand yeah, dollars, give or take down. Good. Yeah. For a down payment. And of course, I mean, we, we go, we honestly, we probably could have scraped that together between him and I and, but we didn't want to put that much money into our first deal. I saw that as super risky. And so I said, I had heard about long distance investing. So I said, let's do that. Let's just, let's try it. And so what I did was, through my podcast, I actually had a guest on. His name's Neil Bawa. He's a data scientist. He lives out in Silicon Valley and he's a data scientist turned real estate investor. And so what he's done is he leveraged his skill set as a data scientist to back test demographic data to find out what markets would be good to invest in. And so he gave me all these de different demographic data points because he tested all these different combinations of data points to look at to see what makes for a good market. And so he told me there's these six demographic data points to look for when you're analyzing a market. So what I did was I ended up hiring a freelance software developer to scrape census data off the internet. And so he gathered these six demographic data points for 7,000 cities across the US and he just gave me all that data. And I was an accountant by trade, finance guy, so I'm great with Excel and numbers. So I analyzed all 7,000 cities on these six demographic data points and ranked them from one to 7,000 based on how they ranked on the six demographic data points. Okay. And so then from there, we said, okay, which of these cities has inventory that we could actually buy? So are there actually houses that we could purchase? And two, if we can purchase things there, are there real estate professionals that can actually help us? Are there agents? Are there contractors? Are there plumbers, et cetera? Like, can we have help or can we build a team there if we need to? And so that crossed off, I don't know, maybe 15 out of the top 25. And so we were left with 10. And we said, all right, let's start making offers on all of these cities. We're indifferent on all of them. Let's just make offers across all of them. And we had offers on houses across the US. We had Idaho, Alabama, Ohio, North Carolina, Texas, Florida. Like we were all over the place. And we said, whichever one hits first, we'll just start to build our portfolio there and we'll scale there until we can't anymore. And so we just happened to hit in a market in Texas. We found an amazing agent to work with and we've just continued to, to scale there. And so that's how we find the markets. Okay. If you want to talk about how we manage them, I could do that too. But that's how we found the markets. So you didn't just like blindly choose. So that was a lot of work and research that you put in to make sure that the market fits your needs for the business you're building. Yeah, exactly. I would never go in blind. I'm too data driven and I always do my due diligence. Well, I just want to like highlight that for our listeners because <clears throat> I feel like it looks like it's easy, you know, from the outside. Yeah, from the outside it does. And there are people that would dive in without <clears throat> doing the research. So I think it's important that you look at the data. 
So why don't we talk about once you determine what city fits your needs and you look at the data and do your research and determine it's the right fit, how do you then manage? Because that's a, Boston to Texas is a flight. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a flight, but I've never taken a flight. I've never been to this city. I've never been. Have you ever been in a house? I've never been in any of the houses down there. I've never seen them in person. I've never been to the city, nothing. Neither has my business partner. So it's not like he's flying down there, nothing. Mm -hmm. We do it all from here. Okay. And if I could summarize it all in one word, I would say technology. And what I love about this is it forces you to treat your real estate like a business. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Okay. If you purchased a, a unit right down the street from you, you're ob- you would, lo- would likely feel like you need to go there, like you're obligated to go there. Yeah. Whereas when you're buying thousands of miles away, you're forced to think like a business owner and think like an entrepreneur and say, how can I build the process or system around this to really make it? Because I can't go there or I don't want to go there. So what do I need to do? And so for me, the way we manage it is the way we would if it was down the street because neither of us know, like if people say, well, what if a toilet breaks? And we say, well, I don't know how to fix a toilet. So I'm an accountant, right? So whether it's my next door neighbor or it's 2000 miles away, I don't know how to fix a toilet. doesn't matter if I'm looking at it. I could stare at it for hours. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to call a plumber and the plumber is going to come and they're going to take care of it. And it's the same with anything. So if it's 2000 miles away, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the same as if it was next door we're going to have a professional that's going to go take care of it for us. And that's it. And so, um, I recently had a big issue with a property. I happened to be in town when I was there because I have a property in New York, property in Utah. And do you ever feel like you're at a disadvantage for not being there? Because I feel like I would have been at a disadvantage. It was a massive sewage line problem. And so we had to excavate the entire public street. I had to get city permits. I had a, it was an emergency. Nobody could use the toilets in the property. Obviously that's not ideal with two units. Holiday time. So like in the middle of COVID, there is a, I don't know if you knew this, there was a blacktop shortage in addition to lumber. Um, We had to dig 15 feet underneath the city streets. So it was just like one of the most expensive. I mean, I could have bought multiple properties in other states for what I spent on a sewage line band-aid. So would you ever feel like, like I felt like if I wasn't there, it would have probably cost me double. I was able to be there and kind of like organize all of the manual labor that had to be done and, and trade services, you know, met with different plumbers to get quotes and kind of assess the situation. Do you ever feel like you're at a disadvantage by being at a distance? Or do you think like if something massive like that, would you fly in or would you just say, I'm going to pay a premium to have somebody competent organize this for me? So I think in the short term, you might be at a disadvantage, I guess you could say. But I think in the long term, you're actually at an advantage by being far away. Because like I said, being a business, you force it to be a business. So I think that's why you are long term at an advantage. But for in your case, I I guess my question to you is, what value did you provide? I know you said you, you got all these plumbers together and you talked to all these people, but what I would argue back or play devil's advocate is say, well, I already have a plumber that I know. I've already vetted. I already talked to 20 different plumbers throughout the last year, finding who is the best to do these types of jobs. So I already have them in my, my phone. Like if I know, I know if I have an issue, I just call them. I know, like, I don't need to quote all these jobs. I know they're, they do fair price. I know they do good work. And I have that for every trade or pretty much anything that would go wrong. So I guess my question to you would be, what value did you provide? If you already have those services in place, I don't see why I would need to be there. Fair. I guess for me, there's a housing boom up there. And so the only way to get my plumber, who's usually my plumber's attention, is I went to his office and waited till he got there. And I was like, this is an emergency and I need you down the street like tonight. 
And I yeah. went there with a bottle of wine and a gift certificate to be like, please prioritize my property over all the other properties. Um, so one of the ways that I've combated that is, like I said, my agent that we use down there, he is an absolute rock star. We could not do what we do without him. And so we kind of like, we, we got all these relationships through him because he's an investor. So we said, okay, who do you use for all these things? And we've built relationships with people over the time now, because once he's given it to us, we just work with them directly. But once we've had those contacts, they know that if they don't take care of us, Mm -hmm. we're not going to use them for any other properties. And two, that'll get back to our agent. He, so we own five properties. He owns another probably, I don't know, 10 or 12. Right. And they got almost 20 properties right there that they have, that they can service. And so they know that they're going to miss out on business. And so we have a little bit of weight that we can throw yeah, around. I, I would say you probably have more weight than me, right? Having a two unit property. Um, but yeah, I guess I didn't have to be there. I guess it gave me peace of mind that if I was going to be writing that check for that, it ran over $25,000 just to. Yeah, to, that is a lot for sure. Yeah. So it wasn't like a $2,000 fix. You know, I've had other plumbing issues, but so I'm interested in that aspect of it because investing in real estate has made me nervous for the amount of money I spent on this property. So like that was just one fix I ran into. Um, and so I felt like if I wasn't in town, um, kind of overseeing it and making sure it was expedited, I would have had to put the tenants up in hotels, right? You can't be without plumbing. And I kind of, you know, without going down there being like, I need this done ASAP. And I feel like it was just like a combination of problems, right? Like in the middle of a pandemic with a shortage for like blacktop and supplies, holiday season and a housing boom there where all the tradesmen are really booked up and they just don't have the the bandwidth to take projects on. But so that has, oh, that, that property itself has made me nervous to invest in other properties. Cause I'm like, this property has been essentially a money pit is the only way to describe it. Cause that yeah, was just, and, and I get it. Just that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of money. And I, you know, I might fly there if I was in that case, I haven't been in that case, knock on wood yet, but I guess I still think about it though, is like, even if I'm physically there, I, I don't think I could provide any value. Yeah. Like I, and I know how you went and sat there, but like, I would just call him. I just keep calling him and calling him and calling him or call somebody else until yeah. you know I could get it taken care of. And so I guess that's, that's the way I think about it is what value could I actually provide if I'm there? And if I don't think it's ex- like a lot more than what I could do from here, I don't see why I need to go there. But I think it makes sense that you have to have a team in place. And then the more properties that you have, the more weight you pull with those tradespeople. Because as you said, if you have, if you know, their contract is for 30 properties, they're going to pay a lot more attention like any other business would, right. Than if it's for one property. So I think that that makes sense. Like, and you don't, wouldn't want to invest in a, a real estate market unless you have all those tradespeople available because at least for my properties, it seems like everything goes wrong. Yeah. Agreed. And it doesn't have, I don't want think people to, I don't want people to think that it has to be their weight that they throw around. It could be mm-hmm. somebody else's. So when we invested down there, we only had one property for the first two years. Right. We had no issues because the people we were using were from recommendations of our agent and they knew that. So, and they knew our agent sells a ton of properties. He's right. a super high producing agent. He owns a lot of rentals himself. So they know like, okay, maybe this person doesn't have a lot of rentals yet. Cause we only had one unit, but we knew that they know that he did. And yeah. so they didn't want to screw up that relationship either. And you found this agent and that was part of the data set you were looking for when you were scanning data or once you got your data de- demographics, then you looked for an agent who was also a real estate investor who could provide these contacts. Yeah, it was the latter. So I was okay. using the data to find the cities. And okay. then once I found the cities, I called the top 25 agents that I could find on Google and interviewed every single one and, and ultimately picked one. Wow. So you spent a lot of hours putting this whole thing together. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in 
upfront, but now it takes two hours a month, if that, to manage all my properties. And that's so, with some issues here and there too. So on average. On average. Okay. And so for those listening that are interested in getting into real estate, what would your advice for them be? I think the first thing is to buy a house hack. I think that's the number one best thing any person can do to get started in real estate. A lot of people call it landlording light or landlording with training <laughs> I wheels. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. Landlording with training wheels or landlording light. And it's true because you get to manage your tenants and you get to learn how things work while you live there and typically on a little bit smaller scale. What's great is that you get it for three and a half to 5% down because you get a owner occupied loans. So you get great financing terms. You don't need 20% down. You don't have higher interest rates, et cetera. So house hacking, I right. think is hands down the best way. If you can't do that, then the second best thing that I recommend is going small as you possibly can. Okay. And that goes in the face of a lot of gurus recommendations. A lot of people will say, go big. You know, I already, I always wish I went bigger sooner. And I don't, I don't really agree with that. I think you should start, especially if you're new, I think you should start as small as you possibly can, you know, still buy a good property in a good area, but buy as affordable as you can to get started. That makes sense. And then for our listeners, do you think you need to choose between real estate and investing in the stock market? Cause I know that you also really like the stock market. Absolutely not. And that is one of the things that I really try and preach on my shows because it's Real, I couldn't have gotten started in real estate without the real estate podcasts that are out there. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that turned me off to a lot of them, and I still listen to them, but one of the things I didn't like is that a lot of the real estate podcasts are just real estate only. Like that's the only thing you should ever do. That's the only asset class I believe yeah. in. And, and I don't think that's true. I think everybody should have some allocation to both. Some people should be weighted you know, more to one way or the other. Maybe it's not physical real estate. Maybe it's REITs. Maybe you do passive investing through syndications or some sort of other, you know, like equity crowdfunding, you know, there's so many different ways, but I don't think it's fair for these people to say that it's only real estate. And you don't really seem to hear that in stocks. You don't hear people say it's only stocks. So yeah. it seems to be a real estate thing only. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm going to have a guest on who's like pretty anti um, Wall Street and it's just like all real estate, all real estate, which is, which is great. So I think it'll be an interesting perspective. Um, but yeah, you don't hear that as much on the like investing shows. Most people say there's like multiple ways to do it. Multiple asset classes, real estate being a good addition to your portfolio. But yeah, I do agree. It seems like on the, the real estate shows, some of them say like just real estate. That's the only way. Yep. It seems to be, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't that know why. Is. <laughs> yeah, I don't if know. I figure it out, I will let you know. Yeah, I will. I'll do the same. I still, I still wonder this day, three, four, five years later. <laughs> um, so let's wrap it up with what is your personal finance, um, your favorite personal finance book? Like if you had to give one book to read. Probably The Richest Man in Babylon. Oh, okay. We haven't gotten that one yet. Yeah, probably The Richest Man in Babylon. Perfect. Okay. And so where can our listeners find you? Um, I feel like they should definitely check out your show. You have the two episodes, the investing and the real estate. Um, but what is the best way for them to find you? Yeah, that's the best way to find me. Just go into your favorite podcast app, search millennial investing or real estate 101. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see my face as a character, uh, caricature sketch <laughs> thing pop up and uh, feel free to listen to the shows. I'm also on Instagram. My username is at the Robert Leonard. I'm active on there as well. And those are the best places to find me. Perfect. And we'll link everything on the show. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.